Thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. So the film Dunkirk tells the story of the evacuation of the Allied forces from the French coast uh, during World War II from the perspectives of land, air, and sea. And one of the things, you can actually pump that up just a little bit more. You might be hearing this in the soundtrack, but one of the things that the film does really well is the soundtrack of, uh, of the whole movie. And one of the things that it does is communicates the sense that time is running out. And so this score that you're hearing right now is written by acclaimed composer Hans Zimmer. And it's the score, this part of it shows up in the middle. But the beginning of the movie, some of you guys are getting real stressed out, I can tell, which is good. That's what it's supposed to do. At the beginning of the movie, it opens up with a ticking watch. It's actually Christopher Nolan, the director, had him record his watch as a part of the score. And then this, this score just continues like this the whole movie. It just keeps, continues to increase the urgency, the tempo, the whole time. He actually makes use of something called shepherd tones that makes it feel like there's this continuous rising tone throughout the whole movie that never really settles down. You can watch a whole YouTube video about it if you're really interested. Um, And it's all done very intentionally to create a sense of urgency. And it's why if you watch the film, some of you have seen it, you're on the edge of your seat the entire time because music like this is playing for the whole course of the movie. And I encourage you sometimes to try to listen to it while you're trying to get work done. It'll do one of two things to you. One, you'll get it done at a frantic pace or you'll be like in a corner crying to yourself in anxiety. Uh, I tried to do, like I was prepping the sermon this week, I was trying to listen to it, I was like, I can't do this. This is not good for me. But here's what I was thinking. I kept coming back to this score because if there is a soundtrack for this part of the gospel of Luke, it's this. Jesus is beginning to kick up the intensity. He's beginning to let us know that time is running out, that there's a fresh urgency to what he's doing. So we're just gonna keep the score playing the whole time. We're gonna, we're gonna turn it down. We're going to turn it down. We don't need that the whole time. But what Jesus is doing is he's turning up the intensity here. He's letting us know that time is running out. We are in season five, episode 11, which is the season finale to season five of Luke, um, where we're turning the corner to the second half. Apparently, this is going to be a 10-season thing. Um, We're turning the corner to the second half of Luke right here with Luke chapter 12, 49 through 59. And what Jesus, and we're going to pick up, by the way, with season six at the end of September. We're going to do another five-week series I'll tell you about at the end, um, starting next week in between now and then. But we'll pick up season six at the end of September. But what Jesus does is he's closing out a set of teachings here in Luke chapter 12. A set of teachings that toward the end, starting with what Chris talked about last week, we continue to see this crescendo of urgency, and Jesus is beginning to bring us to a point of decision. And what he's beginning to do here is clarify, in case they haven't realized it yet, that time is running out. And there's one thing that we need to do before it does. And once again, he brings the crowds to a point of decision. So if you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 12, 49 to 59. You can open it up on your phone as well. If you've never opened a Bible before, Luke is one of the accounts we have about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's true and it's trustworthy. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 12, verse 49 through 59. And so last week, some of you guys got the, uh, the pleasure to hear from uh, Chris Steiner, our Everyday Apprentice. Um, he spoke on the parable before this. And before this, Jesus, the whole idea was that we have, Jesus is going to 
to return and we have to be ready. That was the whole idea of that whole previous section. And he talks about that through a set of illustrations to communicate that. And then he talks about that through a parable, just constantly, hey guys, I'm going to return. You have to be ready. Peter interrupts. He's like, hey, is this for us? He's like, yes, it is. I'm going to return. You have to be ready. And he doesn't stop at the end of that parable, but he continues on with that theme right into the next set of teachings. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 12, verse 49 through 50. Um, we're going to read the whole, the, these two verses here, and we're going to focus on 49 at the beginning, and we're going to come back to verse 50 at the end. But he says this, I came to bring fire. Everybody say fire. I came to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish that it was already set ablaze. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how it consumes me until it is finished. I'm going to apologize right now if you've ever invited a friend to the church today for the first time, and you're like, don't worry, he's not a fire and brimstone preacher uh, today's the day. So, um, because Jesus kind of is here and he starts talking about fire. And so we're going to talk a little bit about fire because one of the things you see, if you read through the Bible, you see a lot of themes that carry on from the beginning all the way to the end. And one of those themes is this image of fire, which is that word I had you repeat. And the word fire is often associated with judgment. Everybody say judgment. So whenever the Bible talks about judgment, often you'll see this imagery of fire right next to it. In judgment, what we're talking about is at the end of history, when God has all individuals stand before him um, and makes an evaluation of their life in that moment, of the lives that they live. That's what we're talking about. And so you have this image of fire that's often uh, connected to this idea of judgment throughout the scriptures. And one of the things you see is when you read about fire and judgment together in the Bible, often you'll see that fire does two different things. It's not an either or, it's a both and. On the one hand, it purifies, and on the other hand, it consumes. There's purifying effects of fire and consuming effects of fire. And we see this in the last chapters of the Old Testament. If you have your Bible, you can just flip back a couple books, and you see the last book of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. And in the last chapters of the last book of the Old Testament, there's this part where he starts talking about fire. He starts talking about this day of the Lord that's going to come. And just, as a, just for some uh, biblical history here, when the Old Testament or when Malachi spoke his words, there was like hundreds of years before then Jesus and John the Baptist. And so, you know, these were like the last words of the prophets leading up to eventually Jesus, John the Baptist, and all that happened with Jesus' ministry. And so these were the words that would have been ringing in people's ears. These were the words that would have shaped their imagination. These are the words that would have given them an idea about what to expect and what it will look like when God comes to save. Um, through his promised Messiah. Listen to what Malachi says in Malachi chapter 3 and then Malachi chapter 4. And listen for these two images of purifying and consuming. It says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Um, and the day there is just kind of a, uh, it's a, a shorthand for the day of judgment. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who will be able to stand when he appears? Then it says this, for he will be like a refiner's fire and like launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, which is referring to the priests in ancient Israel, but as a, as a representative of the whole, and refine them like gold and silver. And so on the one hand, he talks about the purifying effects of fire. But then you skip down a couple verses and he begins to talk about the consuming effects. So the purifying effects on the righteous and the consuming effects on the wicked. Listen to what he says. For look, the day is coming. There's that language again. The day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them roots or branches. And so we see these two images show up in Malachi, the very end of the Old Testament, a couple hundred years before Jesus comes onto the scene. That would have shaped their imaginations. One 
is the uh, purifying effect of fire. And to purify something is to remove everything impure that is there and leave only what is pure. It uses the example here of purifying gold or silver by heating it up, removing any impurities, and all you have is pure gold left at the end. And so often when the Bible, sometimes you read in the New Testament, the Bible talks about the earth being burned up. Often we have this image of like God just destroying everything and getting rid of it all. But when we think of burning up, you almost think like a forest fire. What does a forest fire do? On the, on the day of a forest fire, it looks consuming. But if you look a couple decades down the road, you see a healthier forest than ever. When God is creating the new heavens and the new earth and renewing the earth, fire will be a part of that, but it will be a purifying fire as a part of the effect of it. And that's what God is doing to the righteous as well as we see here. On the other hand, we see a, a less optimistic view of fire. And it's the consuming effect of fire. Malachi, in no uncertain terms, talks about being reduced to ashes and stubble, being consumed. There's nothing within it that can withstand the fire. And this is what he says will happen to the wicked. If you've ever had a fire in your backyard or something like that, and you throw uh, a newspaper into it, the first thing that just withers up, it's reduced to ashes. There's nothing there that can withstand the heat of the flame. It's not like gold or something that maybe could be melted and reformed and reshaped. Paper just disintegrates into ashes. And it says here that's what God will do to the wicked. It's one of the reasons why when you read hell and talk about the way the Bible talks about hell, fire is often associated with it. It's that same imagery. And so Jesus and his listeners would have been really familiar with this prophetic word from Malachi. Really familiar. And so when Jesus begins to talk about what he says here, this is the imagery that would have come to people's heads. This is the croft cross-reference that people would have had in mind. And so he opens up this section by saying, I came to. He says, I came to bring fire and how I wish that it was already set ablaze. And whenever Jesus says, I came to do something, or this is why I have come, what he's telling us is he's telling us his personal mission statement. He's telling you that what I'm about to say next is a part of why I am here. It's a part of my identity. It's a part of what the Messiah has come to do. And so when he says, I came, what he's saying, he said, judgment is ultimately, or in some sense, at some point a part of my mission on this earth. Later in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, we'll get to another half of his mission statement where he talks about how I've come to seek and save the lost, but here we're talking about how he came to bring fire on the earth. We talked about a few weeks ago how often there's this warm and fuzzy Jesus that we have. We're like, well, we don't like the other Old Testament stuff or the New Testament stuff that maybe Paul talks about, but Jesus, he's the friendly love-your-neighbor guy who's constantly bringing sinners around him and having a lot of fun. Totally true. But then he also talks about judgment, hell, and death more than anybody else. And even here, he's talking about fire and judgment. When you actually read the accounts about Jesus rather than just the images that we hold up of him, you see that he talks about judgment and wrath as well because there's a consistency throughout the scriptures. But here's the thing. People were expecting, because they had this in their imaginations, Malachi, they had this in their minds, they were expecting that when God shows back up, when the day of the Lord comes, they were expecting when the Messiah comes, which is their word for their Savior, their Deliverer, the one who's going to make everything right again, that God's going to send. When that day comes, they were expecting that when that person shows up, it's going to be judgment immediately. Israel's going to be good. Everybody else is going to be bad. Over here, we're going to be purified. Everybody else is going to be consumed. It's going to happen the day that the Messiah comes. But what we see is that Jesus has now been walking around for a while, and this hasn't happened yet. 
Jesus has been here. He's been doing his ministry. He's been casting out demons, but we haven't seen this fire fall yet. We haven't seen this purifying and consuming fire come because Jesus says, what does he say? How I wish that it was already ablaze. He says, a time is coming, but it's not just yet. There will be a time of judgment, but it's not when you expect. Again, people were expecting it immediately, but Jesus said it's actually going to happen eventually. This is an image we used a couple of weeks ago um, to talk about um, how, how to understand what Jesus did. A lot of people were expecting there not to be that window in the middle. You'd have the present age, and then you'd have the age to come, and the Messiah would be in the middle, and then the age to come would start. There'd be judgment. All of those things would happen. What we actually see is that there's a brief time of overlap. There's the present age, Jesus comes, and then he leaves, resurrection and ascension, but then he promises to return someday. He started the new life in the kingdom now, but the day of judgment is, is waiting for his return. And so people were expecting it immediately, but he says that it's going to be eventually. And so he uses this image of fire that people would have had in their minds because the words of Malachi have been circling around Israel for hundreds of years now, associated with the Messiah. But he doesn't do what people expect, but yet he says that judgment is coming. The world will be set ablaze. In short, here's what he says. He says, the wick is lit. If you think of 4th of July a couple of weeks ago, um, and you, you light the wick of something, it means that something else is coming. The wick is leading toward something that's going to be set ablaze. Jesus is saying here, the wick is lit. The clock is ticking, and it's only a matter of time, Jesus says, before the window of opportunity between its first and second coming closes. This is the point, again, Hans Zimmer is playing in the background at this point in the gospel. So the question is, what are we supposed to do with this? Does he just leave us and say, okay, guys, the wick's lit. What are we supposed to do with this? In the next three sections, we're going to come back to verse 50, but in the next three sections, at the end of a long series of teaching, Jesus tells us what we need to do now that the wick is lit with his life and ministry. Listen, and a lot of people, you'll read this, and it looks like three separate sections. Sometimes that's because of the headings, but it really it all holds together. Listen to what Jesus says first. Each of these is intro or has a question in it. He says this in uh, verse 51. He says, Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. I promise you I did not preach this text just because my in-laws are here this weekend, but uh, they're Christians, so um, nonetheless. So you'd expect, though, right? Jesus opens up. He says, do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? And you'd expect Peter to be like, of course, You've said that multiple times, like that's your thing. The Isaiah says you're going to be the prince of peace. People are going to sing songs about you being peace on earth. 50% of their Christmas songs are going to be about this. The answer is, of course you came to bring peace on earth. And Jesus says, no. He says, I didn't actually, yes, there's a sense in which that's true. But there's also a sense in which it isn't true. He says, no, you're actually going to feel tension in your closest relationships with your family and friends because of me. I'm going to make Thanksgiving awkward. This is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I'm going to introduce tension. Things were fine. And then I came along, and I'm going to make things tense with some of the relationships in your life. And what Jesus is saying here is that if the wick is lit, he's saying that you have to risk your relationships. If the wick is lit and judgment is coming, Jesus is saying you have to risk your relationships. The most important relationships in your life are not those that you have with your mom and your dad, your brother, your best friends, anybody else, but with Jesus. 
the most important relationship with your life, he's saying this is the one you have to get right first, your relationship with me. Going back to the uh, first century, we've talked about this in other sermons where Jesus talks about family, that family was everything in the first century. You did nothing to disrupt your family. Your family relationships were the most important relationships that you had. The worst thing that you could do was something that could disrupt those, especially when you lived in all the same house often. And that's true in our own time as well. For a lot of us, family is everything. But I would also say, I think if Jesus were speaking in our own time, he might also add the phrase friend against friend. He covered a lot of relationships here, but I think he might even say in our own time, friend against friend as well, because for a lot of us, maybe we're not that close to our family, but we're close to a lot of different friends that we have. Maybe friends from college or high school or just some other aspect of your life. And what Jesus is saying here is, I'm going to introduce tension into all of those relationships. And you're thinking, the worst thing I could do is disrupt something that I've worked so, it's so hard to make friends in adulthood. And you're telling me that this might disrupt that to follow Jesus decisively. There's this book called When the Church is a Family, and theologian Joseph Hellerman talks a lot about how Jesus isn't really as family-friendly as we think sometimes. And here's what he says at one point, just summarizing Jesus and all he had to say about family. He says, exchanging one family for another is at the very heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Exchanging one family for another is at the very heart. And so he knows that what you think about him might create tension in some of your closest relationships, whether those are with your friends or with your family. Now, some of you come from Christian families and you're like, I think it would cause a lot more tension if I wasn't a Christian than if I was. And I get that, right? You know, some of you are come from Christian families where there is no tension. You know, I know some of you come from like generations worth of Christians. Every extended family, second cousin, everybody's a Christian. You have 10 pastors in your family. You know, that's your family story, Christians. But at some point in your family story, somebody had to risk their relationships to become a Christian. And it changed the whole generational dynamic of your family for years to come. Somebody had to risk relationships in order to follow Jesus. There's a lot of places in the world where this this statement from Jesus really is, rings true for a lot of people. Remember in the summer of 2017, I had visited Cairo, a very non-Christian context. My wife was home pregnant with our first child. I was exploring the pyramids. Um, And uh, so that's our dynamic. And um, nonetheless... At one point, we did, we did a lot of stuff. We spent a lot of time at churches, preaching in some different places. And at one point, we got to sit down with somebody who'd recently become a believer. He was a Muslim background believer, so he'd grown up Muslim. We sat down with him. He was a couple of years older than me. Um, and we were sitting down. He tells us his story of becoming a Christian. Two years earlier, he had met some Christians who had slowly started to disciple him, and he became a Christian as part of his story. And so he takes us on this tour around Islamic Cairo. And this is a picture from um, just uh, the particularly Islamic, historic Islamic Cairo. And he's walking us around and he's pointing out all these different places. At one point, he points to a building and he says, that's where my mom works. It's one of the centers of Islamic education in the whole Arabic-speaking world. And then he points to this place. This is a, uh, a mosque. And he says, this is where I grew up going and visiting as a child. And he points out all these different other sites that when he was a Muslim, all these sites in Islamic Cairo that meant a lot to him, but now are different. And what he said to us is that becoming a Christian put every relationship in his life at risk because he was the first person in his family to decide to follow Jesus. And at the time, he still hadn't told anybody two years in because he knew that the day that he does, it's going to change his whole family dynamic. Some of you are highly relational people. 
right? Your, your favorite thing is making everybody happy. And hearing this verse, it stresses you out. Stresses you out to think like of introducing tension. You're holding back from decisively following Jesus with every area of your life because you're afraid of introducing tension. Whether it's outright hostility or maybe just a little bit of awkwardness at Thanksgiving, you're afraid of introducing tension into your relationships. And so you're holding out on decisively following Jesus, going all in on him until you can find a way to manage those relationships and massage out the tension and make sure you got some other people to come with you. But Jesus is saying, look, the wick is lit. You can't just wait around for everybody else to become believers. You can't wait around for everybody to be cool with this. You have to make a decision for yourself, even if it puts your, your relationships at risk. Now, there's some hope here. And the hope is that if you get this relationship with Jesus right, maybe you'll get some of those old relationships thrown back in as well. As people begin to see you follow Jesus, they might begin to follow him as well. But he says if you get this backwards, if you first focus on your other relationships and make Jesus second, you're putting relationship with Jesus at risk. In the end, you're going to risk a relationship. The only question is which one? Are you going to risk your relationship with Jesus or risk your relationship with other people? Because something's going to be at risk. But again, just to give you some hope, I remember my parents, my dad and my first mom, they weren't Christians when they got married in uh, 1981. Um, she passed away in 2001. But when they, um, when they first got married, they weren't Christians, but they met some believers at some point. And my mom became a Christian, and then my dad became a Christian. Um, but my dad was moving a little bit slow. That's kind of his, you know, his way of life. He was a little bit slower uh, at this kind of thing. And so my mom's intensity about—my dad's here, everybody. So um, my mom's intensity— about her faith, though, was affecting the whole home environment. She was up reading the Bible. She was up praying. She was going to church. She was talking about her church friends. She was making more space for church in their schedule. She was really excited about it. And uh, that, combined with those early marriage struggles, was creating some tension in the marriage. And so they were in premarital counseling, and they were trying to work through all of this. Or my mom was really excited about her faith, and my dad wasn't really sure where he was at with this whole thing. And at some point, my dad said to my mom, look, Dana, how do I get close to you? And she said this, look, if you want to get closer to me, get closer to Jesus. And he did. And that's my hope for some of you as well, that it's not a guarantee, but that as you focus on Jesus, you might get some of those other relationships thrown in too. Second thing Jesus says after saying risk your relationships is this. He says, also says to the crowds, when he starts talking about the weather, classic Jesus, when you see a cloud rising in the west, right away you say a storm is coming, and so it does. And when the south wind is blowing, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky. He just throws hypocrites in there, just as he does. But why don't you know how to interpret this present time? So he t- starts talking about the weather and the time. Levi has grown accustomed to asking the forecast of the day early as part of his morning routine. Um, and he, for all he knows, my phone is the thing that knows. Like right now, I can ask Siri, what's, let's just ask, what's the forecast? It's currently cloudy and 70 degrees. Currently cloudy, 70 degrees. Some of you are like, why am I in here? This is like for, <laughs> this is perfect Pittsburgh weather. You know, all, you know, all we have to do is ask our phone, right? We, you know, we know the weather really easily. Ancient world, though, there's no weather apps. There's no weather channel. There's no 5 a.m. weather forecast. There's no little clouds with lightning saying this is coming. There's no, there's no knowledge about high pressure and low pressure. I, I still don't know what that means when they say it. Um, but nonetheless, first century, all you could do is you could look at environmental cues, make an educated guess, and then decide your actions for the day based on what you're seeing. 
Um, in college, I, I like to do deep dives and really niche things. And I remember buying a book called The Cloud Spotter's Guide. I said, this is what I want to know more about. And so I started reading about clouds um, by a guy who founded the Cloud Appreciation Society. Some of you are like, how do I get in? Um, <laughs> and they have a manifesto about clouds um, in this book. And there's one line that says this in the manifesto. I have not memorized the manifesto, so before you guys get weirded out by me, here's one of the lines. It says, we seek to remind people that clouds are expressions of the atmosphere's moods and can be read like those of a person's countenance. Jesus would have been part of the Cloud Appreciation Society. In fact, in the ancient world, he didn't need one because everybody knew that you had to appreciate the clouds. So the clouds are the only thing you really had to look to to decide how's this day going to go for us. And so ancients understood that a cloud rising from the west meant moisture from the Mediterranean Sea was beginning to pick up and you were probably going to get a storm that day, so cancel your outdoor graduation party that you were thinking about having. South wind, on the other hand, if a south wind is coming, you know that it's coming from the desert and it meant you were about to get a scorching heat that was going to wither all your plants, so turn on the sprinkler. We have sayings today like, you know, red sky in morning, sailor's warning, all that kind of stuff, but for the most part, we just have apps. We're not really good at reading the sky. But the whole point of this, what Jesus is saying, the reason you need to be able to interpret this, he's saying is that you, if you're good at interpreting the sky so that you can take the right action. You don't just want to know if it's going to rain just because. You want to know if it's going to rain so you know, should I grab an umbrella? Or if it's going to be a hot day, should I change into shorts? Or uh, should I cancel my outdoor barbecue? These are the kinds of questions that you want to know, and it's why you read the weather. My wife, though, had a moment where she had to read the weather. It's May 22nd, 2011. And we were engaged at the time, and Julie was headed from Illinois, her home in Illinois, to a, uh, an internship that she had in Joplin, Missouri. And so she was driving from Illinois to Joplin, Missouri, and so she plugged in Rangeline Road, Joplin, Missouri, you know, that's where she's headed, into the GPS. And she's about 15 to 20 miles outside of Joplin. And all the while, there's been this on and off rain, there's been this storm, um, hit, hit or miss, and then all of a sudden, about 15 to 20 miles out from Joplin, it was getting really quiet. She could just noticed everything had changed around her, it had gotten very quiet. And she noticed that the clouds were beginning to look very ominous. And this is a, you know, a 20-something who has grown up in the 90s with an imagination informed by the movie Twister. Um, <laughs> There's a whole generation of us, that was our first PG-13 movie, and uh, it messed us up. Um, and she, she uh, you know, also grew up in Illinois, you know, there's tornadoes, those kinds of things. And so she's like, eh, maybe I should check, the, you know, my app. And she, she opens up her weather app, and it's all red, whole area where she's at, all red. Um, she turns on the radio, the radio's like, uh, there's a tornado headed toward Rangeline Road, um, and seek cover immediately. So she's 15 to 20 minutes outside of Joplin, Missouri. Rangeline Road is where she's headed. And so she decides, she's like, I got to find an exit. So she, there's nothing for miles. And so she finally finds an exit um, on the way to Joplin. She finds an exit. She gets out. She huddles in a bathroom with some strangers in rural Missouri until it passes. While I'm in, at the beach in South Carolina, and she's, she's texting me. She's like, I think, you know, I think I'm going to die. Like, there's a, lot, there's a lot happening. And I'm like, you know, I'm like reading a book, you know, on the beach. So we're very different worlds. Anyways, this tornado ends up hitting Joplin right where she was headed. This is what it looked like. But she read the moment. She made a decision, and it potentially saved her life. Maybe she wouldn't have been there right at the same time. But she read the moment, and she made a decision, and it changed, she changed course. Jesus brings up their ability to interpret the sky and take action, not just because of interesting tidbits, because he wants to challenge them to read 
the moment. In particular, the moment in history where God is uniquely showing up in the life and ministry of Jesus. He's saying, look, if you can interpret the sky and make decisions about something as ultimately as trivial as the weather, or maybe you can, you're somebody who can read the stock market and makes decisions about something ultimately as trivial as money, he's saying you should be able to read the moment and make decisions that don't just have temporal significance, but have eternal significance. So he says, risk your relationships, but then he says here is read the moment. And he uses the word time here. And what you have to know is that there's two major Greek words for time, the words chronos and kairos. Here's what the word chronos means. Chronos refers to sequential time. The focus is on quantity. It's the kind of time that a clock or a calendar keeps. When you say it's 9.45 a.m., you're on chronos time. It's when you, where you get the word chronology, sequential time. But in this passage, Jesus doesn't use the word chronos. He uses the words kairos. And that refers not to the sequence of time, but to the significance of time. The focus isn't on the quantity of time, it's on the quality of the moment that you're in. Some of you guys might be familiar with the prophet Eminem. Uh, 2002, (laughs) in Lose Yourself, he said this, if you had one shot or one opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted in one moment, would you capture it or just let it slip? Some of you don't know, but in high school, I rapped that entire song in front of my class with a guitar. I know a lot of that song. What he's talking about, though, is a kairos moment. It's a moment that could pass by. It's not just this 945. This is your one shot, your one opportunity to seize what you've always wanted, the life that you were made for. And so when Jesus uses the word time here, he's talking, he's using one of his favorite words, and he's talking about this kind of time. Jesus is saying to this crowd, he's saying, look, don't you remember everything that the prophets said about my coming? You've been reading Malachi. You've been reading Isaiah. Everything is being fulfilled in me. Haven't you watched me cast out demons? You've seen people try this, but I'm just casting them out with a word, with authority. Have you not seen my miracles? Have you seen the way I've multiplied bread for the thousands? Have you seen the way I've made people better who were sick? Have you seen the way that I've raised the dead? Are you not seeing the signs of the time? Are you not seeing the evidence that is before your eyes? Read the moment. He's saying, you guys know if there's a cumulonimbus cloud on the horizon to grab an umbrella. But I'm telling you right now, the Messiah has come and you are just going back to your home as if nothing's happening. Don't be caught in the rain without an umbrella, Jesus is saying. Don't be caught on judgment day outside of the person of Christ. This is the moment. Read it. The alternative is to miss it and fail to take the right action and regret it. All of us have had a moment that we failed to read well and regretted it. Finally, here's what he says. Again, another question. He says, Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary before the ruler, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Then he won't drag you before the judge. The judge hand you over to the bailiff, and the bailiff throw you in prison. I tell you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. Luke chapter 12, 57 through 59. Jesus is most likely here referring to a situation in which a person has incurred some kind of debt. Um, All of us are familiar with debt and is failing to pay it back. In the ancient world, if you failed to pay back a debt, um, the way and the court ruled that you needed to pay back that debt, you'd be thrown in debtor's prison where you'd stay until your family or friends could pay back the debt, often being tormented in prison until they could do so to try to get them to do that. And often it just really meant never getting thrown out of prison. It wasn't a great system for getting money um, if that's what your goal was. Remember in fourth grade, I loaned my friend Tim Gadaholt. He showed up in another story before, but Tim Gadaholt, I loaned him $1.50. You know, we had this little canteen area um, during recess, and they had airheads and warheads, and so I loaned him $1.50 to go get his share of those. 
that day I'd also learned about compound interest, and, uh, <laughs> um, and so I said to him, I gave him some kind of interest rate, and, but it was like compounding interest, so compounding the principal um, throughout as well. And so I'm in fourth grade, and I basically tell him he's got to pay me back. For every day, it's going to grow, the amount that he's going to owe me. And it really got out of hand. Um, <laughs> I was a loan shark on my, my fourth grade class. I was a bully to him about this. I was constantly pressuring him. I was like one of those phone guys that's like constantly saying, you gotta pay this back, like you have to. Like, and, I was, and I was letting him know every day when I saw him, here's how much you owe me today. I've done the math and it's a lot. And um, eventually his mom sends him to school with $1.50 and tells him to tell me he's not paying you that much. Here's your $1.50, leave him alone. Um, <laughs> so me and Tim stayed friends for a long time after that. And uh, it's a good thing, though, I didn't know about debtor's prison, because that would have taken it to a whole other level. But he talks about that here. He talks about that kind of situation. And just, you know, the question is, why is he, why is he bringing this up? There's a rule for biblical interpretation that's important. When you're reading the Bible, it's a rule that you, you want to kind of store away, maybe write it in front of the Bible. It's that context determines meaning. Context determines meaning. What that means is the context of a verse determines the meaning of that verse. Not, you can't make any verse mean whatever you want it to mean. You have to look at what's happening around that verse to try to understand what does this verse mean. Apart from context, you read this and you're like, okay, Jesus is giving us some really good advice for litigation and how to deal with litigation in our lives. And like, okay, settle quickly, makes sense. There are actually times in other gospels where he has a similar teaching where that's the point that he's making. When you read it in this gospel, if you read it as a separate section, you might think that. But if you read it as continuous with everything else he just said, there's a lot of words in here that begin to make you think that maybe it's connected to what he just said. Words like judge, or words like getting thrown into prison until you've paid the last penny. And so what he's doing here is he's wrapping this into the conclusion to everything that he's just talked about. In context, he's not just giving you advice about how to get out of litigation if you owe someone a debt. He's telling you to reconcile with God, the one to whom you owe the ultimate debt, the one to whom you will be ultimately be held accountable, the judge at the end. He's saying, you have a debt, you're on your way to the court, and unless you find a way to settle on the way, you're going to a place you don't want to go until you pay the last penny. And so Jesus is saying here, risk your relationships, read the moment, and then finally reconcile with God. When Jesus talks about sin and forgiveness in the Bible, he often uses the word debt. Just read Luke 11, where Jesus teaches us how to pray. He says, forgive us. Some people will say sins or trespasses. The word there is debts. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's a word of image that's meant to help us understand what sin is, that we owe God something, we failed to give it to him, and now we have incurred a debt. And he's saying now, judgment day is coming. Your court day is on the calendar, and you don't want to get there with a lot of debt in tow. You want to settle that on the way. A while back, Julie and I took Financial Peace University. Some of you guys have taken that before. And there's a big part of that, um, that course that is about getting about out of debt. And my wife and I had a good amount of college debt at that point. And the verse that he like, shares like, really gets you all inspired. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 5, which says, Escape like a gazelle from the hunter, like a bird from a hunter's trap. And so you hear that in Financial Peace University, and you're like, Okay, 
let's get out of debt, let's do whatever, let's get in, he talks about gazelle intensity all the time, people are cutting up credit cards, it's exciting. And we all have this sudden urgency to get out of debt in our lives. We're like, we're going to sacrifice meals, we're going to give up this vacation, we're going to do all these things, we're going to stay in our cheap third floor apartment that's really hot and sweaty, but we're going to stay in it to do whatever it takes to get out of debt. We have this gazelle intensity about our financial debt. I know people who have made all kinds of sacrifices, who have done anything to get out of our financial debt. But Jesus is here, he's saying, what if we brought that same urgency to getting out of our debt with God? So many of us don't even realize we have a debt with God, but Jesus is saying to us, what if you brought that same urgency to a debt that is so much more significant than simply getting out of financial debt? He's saying, bring that kind of intensity to your relationship with God and reconcile with him. It's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So Jesus is saying here in these three sections, he's saying the wick is lit, and it's only a matter of time before judgment comes. And so he's saying, risk your relationships, read the moment, reconcile with God before it's too late, and the window of opportunity closes. And this is where I want to return to what I said at the beginning that we skipped over. Jesus opened this set of teachings by saying this, I came to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it was already set ablaze. Then he says this, but I have a baptism to undergo. Everybody say baptism. I have a baptism to undergo and how it consumes me until it is finished. Yes, the wick is lit. But Jesus is saying something else has to happen before the world is set ablaze and made new, before judgment day comes. And he hints at it in the following verse. Now, if you're the disciples here and you're listening and you're like, um, I'm pretty sure you were already baptized. Like, we remember it back in Luke 3 when that's written. Um, we remember that you were baptized and you told us about it and it happened. You went underwater, there was the Holy Spirit, it was real, real weird, and it all happened. We saw this. We saw it go down. So what is he talking about? He can't be referring to his literal baptism. That already happened. What's he talking about here? What baptism does he still have to undergo? So we have to understand the word baptism a little bit more. The Greek word baptizo primarily means to submerge something in water. And what's interesting is that when you talk about submerging something in water, what's interesting is that if you read through the Old Testament, submerging something in water or flooding something or drowning in water is an image of judgment as well. Fire isn't the only image of judgment throughout the Bible. Water is as well. Just read through the Psalms. Read Isaiah. Read the Noah flood account. Read um, some portions of Jonah. You see this language of being flooded, being submerged in water as a symbol, as a sign of judgment. And here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, by bringing these two ideas together, here's what he's saying. He's like, I'm not just saying that I've come to prepare to judge the world. He's, he hasn't just come to prepare to judge the world, but rather he's come to take the world's judgment on himself as well. He's preparing for the world's judgment, but also before that happens, he's going to take that judgment on himself. He's not just here to judge, but to take judgment. The judge himself has now come to take it on himself so that through faith in him, we don't have to be fe- or fear the future judgment, but we can set, be, be set free from it. He was consumed by judgment so that we don't have to be if we believe. A lot of us know John chapter 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You know what John 3, 17 says? He says, I have not come to judge the world, but to save it. God didn't just send his son to judge the world, but to save it through him. Judgment is coming, but that wasn't the first and only part of Jesus' mission. 
It is first to save us from judgment if we want it. In fact, when Jesus uses the word at the end of this, he says, until it is finished. It's the Greek word teleste. If you look in the Gospel of John, what are Jesus' last words on the cross? It is finished. This is a word that is already pointing us toward that day where Jesus breathes his last breath on the cross, where he's taking the judgment of God on himself. And when he's saying it is finished, he's saying that if you want it, judgment day can be over right now at the foot of the cross. In me, I've taken the judgment that you deserve. And so when you stand before the Father someday, you are no longer just standing in your own works, in your own good deeds, in your own bad deeds. You're standing in mine. 2 Corinthians 5 says, you can be clothed with my righteousness. I took my, your sin on myself so that you can be clothed with my righteousness. I took your judgment so that when you stand on judgment day, you can stand in my identity, not in your own. And I love what Jesus does here. He brings together this contrasting imagery. He brings together fire and water, which in our head brings together together two different ideas, but together communicate this idea of judgment. And he's letting us know that there's both a fire of judgment that is coming someday when Jesus is returning. But first, at the cross, he is going to be submerged by the flood of judgment. He is saying not just is the wick lit, but he has come to quench it for those who believe. The wick just isn't lit, it's quenched for those who believe. You don't have to stand in fear of judgment someday but you can be set free to stand in, or stand in faith that day instead. This is what makes it possible for us to be reconciled with God, is that at the cross, Jesus took the wrath of God that we deserved, so that through faith in him, we don't have to fear judgment. We can be reconciled with God. Our debts can be canceled from the moment of faith. Romans 5, chapter 10 through 11 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. In the end, there's going to be a judgment day. And the only question is, are you going to stand there on your own with your debt in tow? Or are you going to stand there in Christ, who already took the judgment we deserve on the cross for us? Jesus is saying, the wick is lit, and time is running out. But first, for those who believe at the cross, it's going to be quenched. So he's saying, risk your relationships. Read the moment. Reconcile with God. We're at the end of season five of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has brought this crowd to a point of decision. And what you're seeing, you've seen who he is. You've seen what he's done. He's saying, now, come, make a decision about me. We're going to start another series next week, but I want to end this one where Jesus ends right here with chapter 12, a point of decision. For some of you, it's a decision to go further. You've been holding back from decisively following Jesus. You've really been indecisive, sitting on the fence, not sure what you think. Um, you know, maybe you're a Christian, but you've nothing, there's never really been a fire under you to go any further. For others of you, it's a first time decision. You have to make this initial decision about whether Jesus is Lord of your life or not. And it's a decision that you follow up with baptism that Jesus hints at in this passage. What baptism is, there's lots of ways to talk about it, but one of the things, the images that baptism is meant to be is it's an image of being un, going under the waters of judgment and coming out of the waters now clothed in the righteousness of Christ, clothed in him who took God's judgment for us. I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. I do this every once in a while, but I just want to give you an opportunity here at the close of this season. Maybe it's your first Sunday. Maybe you've been with us all summer or with us for a lot longer, but I want to give you an opportunity to risk your relationships, read the moment, be reconciled to God. Maybe if you've never made that decision before, 
or you've walked away for a while and you're ready to decisively follow him. So everyone just close your eyes, bow your heads. In a moment, I'll have us just repeat a short prayer after me, all of us together. But I want to give you an opportunity right now, if that's you, if you've heard this today, you've heard Jesus' words, you've read the moment, you want to be reconciled. I just want to give you an opportunity right now, just raise your hand, just to acknowledge that in your heart. I see your hand. want to repeat this prayer after me. Jesus, I was deserving of your judgment. But I believe you took the judgment I deserved. So that through faith I could follow you into the life I'm made for. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.